have a baby who can't come out of their incubator, you can still take their temperature, you can still hold their hand, you can still, you know, rub their little feet. There's always ways where you can connect with your baby. Welcome back to Home Mama's Podcast. We're here to give you tools, resources, and evidence-based information so you can make the best decisions for yourself and your family. Whether you're trying to conceive or navigating life with a toddler or a teenager, we got you covered. I'm Dr. Ilana Romel, pediatric naturopathic doctor and creator of Med School for Moms, an online resource where I teach moms how to safely be a doctor mom. My co-host is Stephanie Granke, registered dietitian and program director for Whole30's Home Mamas Club, and co-creator of Whole30's pregnancy program, Healthy Mama, Happy Baby. I'm so happy to start off this month's series on navigating the NICU. Steph and I, we love supporting moms through all different experiences, and we really haven't yet touched on mamas who've either had personal experience with the NICU or have friends who they want to support who have gone through time in the NICU. So this month, we have various interviews lined up with moms who share their personal experience. They are courageously sharing their stories to help us moms guide us through their personal experience. Now, on today's show, I invited a colleague of mine, Dr. Erin Fasoda. Dr. Erin is not only a naturopathic doctor and colleague of mine, she's also a dear friend and one of my instructors that helped me teach my new online program, Med School for Moms. She specializes in pediatrics and practices in Toronto, Canada. On this episode, we're going to get personal with Dr. Erin. She's going to share with us what it was like for her on the side of being the patient, finding out the news that her baby will be born early and will inevitably need a NICU stay. Dr. Erin's story is so moving. When I first heard it, I knew her experience would be a gift to others to inspire hope and optimism through scary times. So I'm excited to bring Erin onto the show today. So let's go ahead and welcome her and hear her story. Hi, Dr. Erin Pesota. I'm truly so happy to have you on today, not only for our listeners, but also selfishly. I I find this topic to be something that I'm personally not very um, up to date with. I haven't had a personal experience with a child in the NICU. And I think it is just such an important topic that we're navigating this for our mom listeners and and also for so many of us moms who have friends that have children in the NICU. We want to know how to support them. And so I know as a colleague of mine, you're also a naturopathic doctor Hearing your story and hearing how you navigated this, both with the medical background and as a mom, was really inspiring to me, and I knew we needed to have you on today's show. So thank you so much for the time away from your busy practice and coming on today's show to help teach some of the moms what you've learned through your experience and and, and shining some wisdom that you've gained from your experience. So thank you again today to being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be able to share our story and talk to your listeners on the podcast. Great. Well, thank you. So as you know, we start all of our episodes with our Nourish Yourself segment. So my first question to you as a mom, what did you do today or what will you be doing today to nourish yourself? So today is a bit of a delayed gratification answer, but um, I booked myself a massage for tomorrow at a spa where you get to sit in the steam room before and after your massage and really maximize the benefits of the massage and relaxing alone time. Awesome. I love that. Oh, you're going to enjoy. That's so wonderful. And I always find it so interesting to hear what people are up to because, you know, I think a nourishing practice could be as simple as making a warm cup of tea and it can also be as luxurious as this type of massage. So I'm so proud of you and impressed for you to just get that on your schedule and make that happen because I know how busy you are. So you enjoy that. I absolutely will. Thank you. Good, of course. And so something that I'm doing today to nourish myself, it's also coming later in the day. I actually have yet another meeting with an assembly member of here in San Diego. Um, I'm meeting with another group of doctors to really help fight this sad bill that we have going on about um, vaccine rights. And I've been incredibly involved. I know... um, Dr. Pesota, you're in Canada, so you're probably not very familiar, but here in in California, unfortunately, we're having a lot of proposed um, bills trying to exclude medical exemptions from medically fragile individuals so that they're no longer able to be protected against some of these vaccines. And so I've just been incredibly passionate about this since I do work with a lot of pediatrics, uh, you know, kids, just similar to you do in your practice. And, you know, my, my job is to really protect these kids. So I've never been such a litigious person, but I've been going to meeting to meeting, making so many calls getting a lot of people together to really take action. And the reason why I bring this up is that 
as much energy and time this is taking me, it is incredibly nourishing to me. And the reason is, is that it feels really good to take action when you feel like something may interfere with your life or your patient's life or, you know, people in your community's life that truly is wrong. You know, it doesn't feel fair to me. It's not giving these medically fragile individuals a fair chance to really have a say in what their doctor feel like it's um, important for them to do or not. So anyway, it really does fill my tanks and it's a nourishing practice to me. And although I'm pretty exhausted from doing all of this advocacy work, I it, and the the upside of it is that it really does fulfill me and nourishes me. And so if anything can, by me sharing that, inspire some of the listeners to really take action. If you are a California resident, I do a lot of promotion on my Instagram page just to share and educate. And so it really does feel good when you're in action. And so that was just something I wanted to share since I am going to be doing that later today, um, yet again in another meeting. So I'm looking forward to that. And it, and it really does make me feel good. That's great. I actually do have um, sort of my ear to the ground on on what's going on in California, mostly because um, sometimes Canada follows suit when mm. um, U.S. laws come into play. And, you know, I would say even my own little kiddo, maybe she's not considered medically fragile at this point. She definitely sort of orbits that sphere. So I'm pretty conscious of, of um, vaccine exemptions and what's happening both in the U.S. and Canada right now. So I'm Great. glad to hear that you're doing that. Kind of you work. know, and I'm really glad you are aware of that. And that's what I tried to educate even non-California residents is you still need to be up to date with this, because if we do have this bill passed, you're going to be next. And so we all have to be fighting. So thank you for the support there. And it's actually a, a very um, pertinent topic, I think, to this episode, let's say, because I didn't actually think about that connection. But, you know, we're going to be talking a lot about these NICU babies who had a had a start in their life that makes them just more susceptible to being a, having a more watchful eye on them. Right. So they were either premature babies, but not all NICU babies are premature. Right. They can range from pre, premature babies or not even past due babies. You know, it, it all just depends. There could be so many different conditions that warrant a NICU visit. And and these babies start out with needing some extra attention and extra care. And and that's really my philosophy. And I know yours too, Dr. Persoda, is that we really treat our kids as individuals. We take into account their, their history, their family history, and we want what's best for these children. And so I think it's so important that we're here as parents to support these little guys um, and protect them from whatever harm that may come up. And with vaccines, it's just it's such a controversial topic and so complex because there's really no right way or wrong way. It's it's very it's very challenging. It's it's risky to not give vaccines. It's risky to give vaccines. There's just so many different topics. But that's not the topic of today's episode. Um, I think we could easily talk for hours about that. But I just wanted to bring that up since it is kind of on my mind and so pressing. But I am glad that you're you're on top of it. But let's jump into the NICU and how as a mom and as a doctor, you've been navigating life in the NICU for, for a number of months. So if you don't mind, maybe as a start, let's share your story. Um, let's share how old your little girl is and what your process was with navigating life in the NICU and what, and then we can go into some of the great questions we got from some of our moms. Sure. So Edie is, um, she's two and a half now. She'll be three at the end of, uh, at the end of August. And um, for us, things actually got really complicated at our 20 week ultrasound. And the story really from that ultrasound to Edie's actual birthday could probably be the subject of a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, but that actually meant that we were prepared for a hospital delivery in an operating room. And we knew that she'd need medical interventions regardless of when she was born. And they really tried to prepare us for any possible outcomes from, you know, possibly not even making it to a live birth, to needing life support, um, and, you know, anything sort of um, in between. And I don't mean to start out all doom and gloom because we were always really optimistic, but I do think it's important to hear that we were expecting a scary beginning, which I think is different in terms of mindset than a surprise early delivery or complications with delivery, or a surprise diagnosis in an otherwise normal pregnancy. 
So I'd even been admitted to the hospital for 10 days before I actually went into labor. So there was time for the information to sink in. And I'd gone for a tour of the NICU uh, the day before Edie was born, which was actually just the floor above me. So there's a lot of sort of prep work that had already gone into what I knew about the NICU and what we were sort of stealing ourselves for before she'd even arrived. Uh, what I actually found really helpful as soon as we got launched into the high-risk special pregnancy category um, was joining some Facebook groups that were really specific to Edie's diagnosis. So I wanted to mention that. That also sort of helped me sort of prep for potential treatments or outcomes um, around what might happen before she was born and, and after she was born too. Edie was actually born at 32 weeks and um, and four days. And we got to see her really quickly before she was whisked away to be stabilized. And it was maybe eight or 10 hours before we were finally allowed to go up to the NICU to see her. And even though that felt like and still seems like eons when I say it out loud, we were just so relieved that, you know, she had made it and she was okay. And and she was okay for us to actually go up and, and see that, you know, we didn't care how long it took. When I think about those first few hours and, you know, meeting her for the first few few minutes and, and in, in the beginning, at first, everything really seemed overwhelming from how many tubes and wires she was connected to, to all of the machines that were around and what was beeping and the alarms going off and, you know, in her room or in other rooms and even things like the nurses schedules and the schedules that they have the babies on. Um, but everything actually really runs smoothly and you get used to things really quickly. Again, I'm going to sort of sound a bit doom and gloom here, but in the interest of, of being really honest about what my mindset was like for the first few days, I was really secretly terrified that Edie was going to die while I wasn't there. And I would wake up at home and have this increasing sense of panic that I'd have to get to the hospital urgently. And once I directly voiced this concern to one of our primary nurses, she assured me that they do everything humanly possible to contact parents immediately if things were to take a turn. So before things, you know, whenever they can, before things get to really serious, they would call me. And knowing this and actually saying that out loud to somebody really helped to alleviate my sense of panic. And it let me sort of relax when I was at home and it let me relax in the mornings before I got to the NICU and let us get into like a good routine of, you know, getting myself up and showered and to and from the hospital every day. And since Edie ended up being in the NICU for two months, that routine was actually really important. So I'm glad that in hindsight, I didn't panic every day about like, oh my God, am I going to make it in time? Is something going to happen? Did I miss anything overnight? And they didn't get in touch with me. I felt really good knowing that, of course, they would contact me right away. Now, I'm going to interrupt because there are so many different points that you mentioned that I think are so important. But this is, I mean, I'm so engaged right now. I'm sure the listeners <laughs> are too. Your story is really um, fascinating. The first part is, and you acknowledge this, is it's not that common for moms to be so prepared ahead of time prior to a, a child having to go to the NICU. Oftentimes it's either an emergency transfer or, you know, the diagnosis comes up post labor, even though, right, there was no complications during pregnancy. So in your case, I could see how that was a definite benefit for you. You know, you had time almost to process it. You had time to join those Facebook groups. You had time for you and your husband just to sit and say, oh my goodness, what's the best case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? Where are our support systems? So I think that's really a wonderful um, gift, I would say, that you guys got. And I appreciate you just acknowledging that that's not how all parents have it. But I like that there are ways to still go about getting that support even after the fact. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The other part that you brought up, and I'm mostly just curious about what your day-to-day -day schedule was, because you said you would go home. And, you know, even the eight to 10 hours without her there, yes, to me, that feels like eons, right? You, you mentioned that, <laughs> but for you guys, you knew that's where she was going to go. You knew that's where she was getting 
the best care. So you were you were prepared for it. What was it like, though? And what was your day to day where you weren't with her even in between those evenings? Could you stay overnight? Did you have to go home? What what was it like for you? And of course, we're talking about now Canadian hospitals, which could very well differ from U.S., but we surely have some Canadian listeners. So we'll all um, listen, you know, not knowing if this is the same policy in all hospitals. Sure. And I will also say now that we we're, we live in Toronto, so we're in a big city. And I would say that we have uh, we were lucky to be at one of the best NICUs probably um, in in the country. And so I, I can only speak to that really lucky and wonderful experience. I have no I, I don't have a, a good frame of reference for what other NICUs are like. So we count our blessings for that for sure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in terms of our our day to day in in hindsight i often tell people that we actually got more asleep with her in the nicu than parents of a of a newborn at home we knew that every night when we left her um she was in the care of of a highly skilled nurse who was only in charge of her and one other baby and she was fed every 3 hours and monitored constantly and even though I was at home waking up to pump every three to four hours, that was probably more difficult emotionally, but pumping was quicker and more efficient and more mm-hmm. predictable than a newborn. And so that actually helped us get, you know, a bit of peace of mind and, and some rest at home. But in terms of the the actual day to day, you know, I would get up, pump, because that's what life was like. And um, by the time I was done pumping and, you know, cleaning pump equipment, I would um, I would set out to the to the NICU and um, and just spend the the day with her there and and get used to her routines and, and do all of the things that I could do um, to take care of her there. And after the first two weeks of parental leave um, that my husband could take off of work, he went back to work. And so every day he would come right from work to the NICU and that would be his time to, you know, get to hold her and, and um, probably sneak in a feed when she was um, when she was on um, bottle feeds with breast milk. He would get to feed her and then... Um, sometimes I would go home first and sometimes I would wait for him and uh, and we would go home at the end of the day together and grab a bite to eat, sleep and get up and, and do it all over again. Mm-hmm. And with respect to your question about, you know, staying over, for us, it depended on what kind of room we had. Um, there are some rooms in, in the NICU that we were at that were equipped with sort of a, a bench that would have been um, probably OK to sleep on. Um, our room was a little smaller and we just had sort of this reclining chair that was most definitely not okay to sleep on. Um, but once I once I started to transition to breastfeeding and she was stronger and able to breastfeed more and more, then they put me in um, like a breastfeeding mama room down the hall. And so I started staying over at the hospital um, more more often once that transition was happening. And then uh, before we actually took her home, and this was really helpful as well, um, their transition process is to get the whole family to stay at the hospital in um, in a room that isn't a NICU room with um, with your infant baby before you take them home so that there's a bit of like space between being constantly monitored with nurses to ask questions to, to all of a sudden I'm home and there's no more wires and, and nothing. And, and what if I'm panicked about that? So it was sort of this mid range where we were all together as a family, but with no wires and no monitoring and no beeping. I love that. It kind of eased the transition for you. Uh, that's really that's fantastic. Did. And how long was your total stay? Did you say two months? Yeah, we were there for two months. She was born on August the 26th, and we took her home on October the 26th. Oh, my goodness. May I ask, just from an emotional standpoint, how it felt for you to have to leave the hospital to go home and go to sleep? I mean, I I hear what you were saying is you were panicked in case you got that call or you missed something. What was it just to even leave her, just that emotional um, attachment to her? How, How did that feel for you? You know, once I got over the panic, I, I really, I'm sure other moms will have a bit of a different answer on this one. I think that 
knowing how important that it was for me to not feel super exhausted Mm -hmm. and knowing that getting home was the only way that I would get any rest and knowing that being at home was when, you know, my husband and I could actually talk and connect about our days and her day. I mean, we never really wanted to leave her, but it wasn't as sort of heart wrenching as as you would think it would be. You know, it wasn't like, oh, my God, I can't believe I have to leave her at the end of the day today. We we always felt like, OK, she's asleep now. She's fed. We cuddled with her as much as we could all day today. I know she's in really good hands with the nurses. Now it's time to go home. And maybe you, it was probably a doctor or a nurse who said to us early on, you can only take care of her as well as you take care of yourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think we both really took that to heart. And so it was like, we're leaving now. We know You know that we're going to be back in the morning and you know that you're safe here and the nurses love you and we're going to be back. So it's okay. You know, Erin, I find this to be incredibly inspiring. I'm not sure how I would do it if I was in your position, of course. we. I think all of us wouldn't know until we're actually there And I think your story is incredibly inspiring. So moms understand and truly believe how important it is for us to to not neglect our needs and to put our needs first so we can show up as the best version of ourselves. It's not a selfish act. It's it's actually something that's an, a necessary act, which is, again, why we always start our episodes with the Nourish Yourself segment. It's something that we want to continuously remind moms that it's not only okay to do. It's essential that you do. And so thank you for sharing that so honestly, because, you know, we may have a mom thinking, gosh, how could you do that? That must be so wrong or so hard. But, you know, at the end of the day, that really was what was best for Edie. And I mean, now that I know her as like this great toddler, I mean, she's thriving and just doing so well. And I mean, that's a whole nother story we can go to is where she is now. But going back into the past, it's you really did what you needed to. And I and I really commend you for that because it's not, I wouldn't say it's easy to make those choices. No, certainly it wasn't easy, but there got to be a point of, well, you know, even if we sat here all night, it's not like we could do any more right. for her. Right, what would you do? Exactly. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Now, let's talk about the day bonding. So if you were there all day long, you got to snuggle as much as possible. One of the moms I thought was a great question just asked a lot about how do we bond with the wires and the cords and all the IVs, it's, you know, they really want to feel like the primary caretaker, um, yet they're still dealing with all the doctors and the NICU nurses and, you know, kind of navigating what are they allowed to do in terms of caring for the baby versus what they need to get permission to do. Can you speak a little bit about your experience and maybe help some of the moms who are currently navigating this and give them some tips what they can do? Sure. And this might also depend on the NICU that you're in as well. For us, I know that we are at a really forward thinking NICU who was really, they were really concerned about what they call family centered care. And so they really made sure that we did everything that we possibly could do. And so at first, we really didn't have to think very much. We just kind of were like zombies who did what we were told by the nurses and the doctors. And we went to the meetings and the support groups and we took the CPR class. But they also were really keen to get us invested in bonding with, with Edie. And so that means that the nurses really showed us how to, you know, get our hands into the into the little incubator and you know, talked to us about hand washing procedures and, and, um, you know, helped us to figure out how to change diapers within her little box Mm. and, and figured out, you know, which wires like would pull, which wires were actually, you know, IVs and going into her skin versus which were just on sticky things or, um, that, that kind of thing and, and navigating those little, little pieces. And, um, and they really were keen on getting us holding her as much as possible. So as, as soon as she was okay to, to come out of her little incubator, so as soon as she was extubated and as soon as she didn't have to be under the UV lights constantly, um, you know, they got us holding her right away. So lots of skin to skin time and they have the babies on a three hour schedule. So we really knew what times she would eat. And so what times we they would want her sort of in our arms so that either she would 
they would be able to to do her feeding tube with her in our arms or, you know, when they would not want to put her in our arms after a feed so that, you know, there wasn't sort, sort of too much jostling around um, after a feed. So we got good at figuring out the schedule. Um, they were really great at helping us navigate what baths were like and, you know, getting the wires off of her for a bath and teaching us, you know, how to, how to hold her. And, you know, because they're really, really little before they're full-term babies. And it's really easy to be, I, I think even more so than your average first time newborn mom to feel like, oh my God, I'm really going to break this little person. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were really great about even, yeah, helping us to, to, te- to teach us how to give her a bath. And with every day that went by, we got used to either what she was already attached to, or she would get stronger and need one less machine or one less wire. And so you, we would get more comfortable in taking her out of the incubator or, into, in, or putting her in and out of her crib when she got to that point um, on our own. So um, I really credit the nurses to to helping us bond with Edie and the policies of the hospital. But they really reinforced for me that you could pretty much do anything and everything. And if you ask, they are really great about, you know, even even if you have a, a baby who can't come out of their incubator, you can still take their temperature, you can still hold their hand, you can still, you know, rub their little feet. There's There's always ways where you can connect with your baby. I love it. You know, as as challenging of a situation this is, this sounds like it sounded like this hospital was a really wonderful, supportive place for you guys. It doesn't sound like you had to fight for your rights or or really feel like you had to advocate for it. I mean, Edie, you really felt like she was under great care, and what great peace of mind you had. I'm so happy to hear that. And sure, I wish that for all moms. I'm not sure what their experiences are. I know um, my co-host Stephanie Granke is also going to be interviewing some other moms. So for the listeners, I do recommend you listen to those others because everyone's experience is different. We all have our own unique experience, but this hospital just sounds wonderful. It's, I mean, uh, amidst the situation, I, I feel like it couldn't get much better than this. Would you agree? Oh, it really couldn't. And I like that you said about advocating because they were really clear with us from the beginning that, you know, we were the constants in our life. Like, you know, doctors and nurses get to go home and sleep and get to take time off, but we would be the ones who were there every day. And so they would take it seriously if we said, you know, I think she's working harder to breathe today than she was yesterday. Mm. And they knew that, you know, there's no caregiver who's spending the day in the NICU who isn't paying attention, you know, who isn't going to be able to say, I think her color's off, or I think she looks a bit swollen here, or I think that IV is really giving her trouble. And when we said things like that, they would, like I said, they would take it seriously and they would look into it or, you know, they would make a note of it and, and follow up and, and, and measure or increase her oxygen or, you know, do whatever it it took to sort of make us feel like, we were making sure that she was getting the care that she needed. So they were really clear about that. Yeah, excellent. And I would say maybe for the mom listeners out there is encouraging them to speak up because perhaps they don't feel like they may be taken seriously and they want to put all of those decisions into the nurses or doctor's hands. But even if they don't have such a receptive staff, it's still so important to be your child's number one advocate. Because at the end of the day, the parents are more bonded to that child than anybody else. And so they can pick up on some of these signs and cues much sooner than even some of the machines or the nurses or staff. So I think that is really a brilliant tip. So thank you. And again, I'm just so Glad you had such a great experience there. All the other questions before I actually go into that, I have a personal question because I'm sure other listeners may benefit from this is just how you navigated life. You know, I'm just sitting here imagining myself in your position and I think to myself, my goodness, how am I blocking off all my patients or how am I just stopping cooking at home or how am I going to, you know, figure out how to take time off all these other commitments that I have in my life. And of course, you had to also come up with those choices and make those really challenging decisions. Now, again, in Canada, you have a better maternity leave than we do, although you're self-employed, so you have some obstacles there. But what was it just navigating 
figuring out how to even be available two months straight to be at the NICU. That was your full-time job. Can you speak a little bit on that? I hope that's not too vague of a question. No, no, it's it's not vague, though that will definitely be one of the differences in terms of, I think, Canadian mat leave questions. Like you said, even though I, I am self-employed, I, I still had planned to take... Um, she was due in October and I'd planned to be off from October until February for sure. And, um, and then in February sort of decide how I was going to go back to work, whether it would be, you know, one day or, or what have you. And, um, and then my husband was going to take parental leave because, uh, we get a year. Well, he, he got a year. It's um, amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's incredible. It really was. Now, what the challenge was for us initially was that um, I didn't plan to take August to October off. I planned to still be pregnant at that point. Mm-hmm. And so I spent the 10 days in the hospital on bed rest before she came, sort of tying up loose ends of my practice, making sure that I found people to cover my practice from um, August until February instead of October until February. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I knew that that piece was taken care of. And so I really was able to commit full time to just taking care of her. And by sort of fluke of um, my dad being in town um, to do some kitchen renovations for us, my dad happened to be in town uh, when I went into the hospital. And then um, so my mom came to town to join him. And so they were here for, for um, probably about six weeks of um, of that two month, maybe not quite six weeks of that two month stay. And um, and so they did a lot for us. Oh, that's they, wonderful. They, there was a lot of cooking that happened um, home so we could just sort of go home and eat. And certainly I know this sounds really not naturopathic at all, but there were definitely days where um, I'm certain that my breast milk was made of, of mochaccinos and Krispy Kremes. Mm-hmm. Well, you were kind of in a survival mode and <laughs> just to 100%. get it. Yeah, no, I understand. And that's okay. Cause I actually, I know you personally, you're a very healthy eater. So I can see that there are times of this just vulnerability and, and sheer panic of what may happen. And so we may act in ways and do things that may be a little bit different than our norm. I think overall, you truly navigated this with such grace. I have to say that. And I think what you had in your benefit was the time to prepare that a lot of moms don't. And so if they just delivered, let's say, full term and without any knowing that something may be a problem, all of a sudden their next two months are going to be in the NICU. This is a very different type of situation than yours. Yet it's still great to see your perspective because everyone has their own unique you know, experience and it's just how we all navigate it. That really takes a lot of partnership from our our spouses, our family members, our community. And this is where reaching out for help is just, it's a non-negotiable. It's its so very important. And I'm so glad you were able to do that. And I do, I, I recommend this to all the moms listening. And I think if you're listening just as a friend of someone who I was navigating the NICU is, you know, again, and we talk about this on other podcasts, it's, I, I think approaching them, not only just saying, what can I do for you? It's just being more direct and saying, I want to cook for you. So, you know, on Thursday night, I'm going to come and bring over dinner. Is that going to be okay with you? You know, like almost be direct with them about it. Or, oh, you have another child. I'm going to pick up your child from school. I'm going to take him home and I'm going to play with him until you're home from the NICU. How does that sound? You know, to just try to support your friends as much as you can by being as direct because they, they simply do need the help. Well, all of that sounds like amazing, amazing advice. And, and it, I want to speak about um, preparedness on the other side of things, even though we were prepared for, um, you know, the possibility of, of the NICU because things were scary during pregnancy and leading up to the NICU, we actually were not prepared at home. And I want to tell other moms that that was totally okay. So we did not change anything about our house other than our kitchen renos, but that was beside the point. Um, we, so we didn't have a nursery. We didn't have a crib. We didn't have a stroller. We had no baby clothes. We really had nothing because our, our pregnancy was scary. 
And we didn't need any of that initially. And all of that fell into place in the two months that that she was in the NICU. We didn't need to be super prepared. Mm. I appreciate you sharing that. I I, th- I think that's actually great. I, I think some moms may have wanted to, some moms may not, but I find sometimes we'll make ourselves wrong for not being so prepared because you don't really, you didn't really know if Edie was going to make it or not. So then having all of this nursery stuff and strollers could actually have made the grieving process even more challenging. Um, So I think that was a personal choice that you made. And I, I I mean, I fully support that. I think there's just no way to do it wrong. And I appreciate you sharing that. That's great. And mostly I just wanted people not to panic about not Mm -hmm. having enough stuff. Right. Yeah, there is always time for that. I think that is it's a great point. Let's go back to some of the other moms questions, because I think they're just so brilliant. Um, They talk a lot about how at times, if your child is a premature baby in the NICU, again, not all children in the NICU are preemies, but in this case, that they can sometimes have feeding struggles. Um, And this is not uncommon, as you were mentioning. At first, she wasn't even strong enough to take to the breast. So she was bottle fed or I'm sure tube fed. Can you give um, some moms some insights into what to expect? Because many, many of our moms here are really pro breastfeeding. You know, they, they want to be able to supply breast milk to their child. They're you know, sometimes curious if they're going to have to push that in the hospitals or if the hospitals are just automatically going to feed them formula. Of course, again, every hospital policy may be different. Can you share what your experience was and what moms can do to try to be as proactive so that they can help assist during these feeding struggles? Sure. So because of Edie's complications during the pregnancy, she was actually started on a specialized low fat formula because she wasn't allowed breast milk because of the high uh, fat content until they could see how she was doing. And so they were actually concerned with fluid building up around her lungs. And so she was monitored really frequently with um, chest x-rays. And so their goal, and again, this is going to be a testament to our hospital and the lactation consultants there again. So their goal was eventually to get her to um, to transition to breast milk and eventually learn to breastfeed. Um, so I pumped and I built up a, a milk supply in the first few weeks. And then we slowly introduced um, breast milk as they x-rayed and, and we watched what they call work of breathing to see if she was having trouble until eventually she was on 100% breast milk and no more of that low-fat formula. Now, at that point, she would she was fed entirely by um, an orogastric tube. And then once she got to about 34 weeks or, or 35 weeks, they changed it to um, a nasogastric tube so that she could start to learn how to breastfeed. And, and this I had no idea with before, but I learned that any earlier than about 34 weeks that babies don't actually have the neurological capacity to coordinate breastfeeding, which is actually a really complex neurological process. And I also learned that breastfeeding is very tiring for little babies who are already working hard to breathe. So it's a little bit like exercise and you don't just sort of run a marathon one day. You have to train. So we started with daytime feeds when she was awake to to start to learn how to breastfeed. And then once she got tired, she would go back into her little crib or her little incubator. And then they would finish the feed with breast milk, but via the NG tube. And there's a dietitian who checked in regularly and computes weight gain or loss and calculates, you know, uh, the amount of milk or formula for each feed and then determines whether you need to top up with breast milk or a more calorie dense formula. Um, There is a point where Um, They were concerned that she wasn't gaining um, enough weight. And so there was a few days where we actually did top up with some formula just so they they could make sure that she was getting a more calorically dense uh, milk. And they determined if you need to thicken feeds or things like that. And again, once we started to more complete feeds, I started staying overnight so we could transition to more on-demand feeding. But as far as the actual breastfeeding and building up supply goes, Our hospital had a great team of lactation consultants and they were really supportive and they did everything that they could to get breast milk into babies. Uh, The uh, only milk bank that is in, I think in Canada, there might be one in Vancouver, I'm not positive, but the only one in Ontario for sure was at this hospital. And so you can donate, um, you can donate breast milk to the milk bank there. And 
any hospital in Ontario can actually have or or ask the milk bank for uh, for donated milk for premature and medically fragile babies in the NICU. So even though it didn't, that's not what we needed for Edie. It was really nice to know that some of the other babies around us were getting donated. Um, breast milk because of how supportive the hospital was about getting breast milk into into these little preterm kiddos. It's wonderful. It's excellent. And again, just as breaking it down into your day to day, what would it look like for you to be at home, wake up and pump, pump again in the morning? Would you bring your milk to the hospital and that goes straight to Edie? Or what was the process like, just so people have an awareness? And again, of course, every hospital may be different, but let's share your story. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, this I, I'm a rule follower. And so when the lactation consultant said pump every three hours, that's pretty much what I did. And so I had uh, I had a hospital grade pump rented for home. And then the hospital itself had a pump in the room. And then they also had a dedicated pump room with other pumps in it. Um, And so there was lots of opportunities to pump whenever and wherever you needed to. And so every three hours, wherever I was, I would pump. And then if I was at the hospital, all I had to do was put the milk into the fridge and somebody would come by and collect it to freeze it. And if I was at home, I would label it and freeze it and then just bring it to the hospital the next day. And then they would, you know, put it with my ever growing stash of milk. And then the nurses would take care of Um, sort of guesstimating how much milk they would need for the next day to um, to come from my my supply so they would say okay well if you're going to be here for for the day then maybe we'll just take out you know this many ounces but if you're going to miss a feed and and maybe you know go out somewhere then we'll take out more or if um, that we would always make sure that we had enough for a bottle so that my husband uh, could give her a bottle when he came uh, to see her from work. So we sort of got good at guesstimating how much needed to be sort of unfrozen for the for the next day. I have to say, how nice. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think like as a mom, a new mom, you know, not experienced in NICU, just kind of going home and figuring all this out. I can see what you're saying is, wow, I did end up getting more sleep or I did did have a lot more help navigating how much milk or even how to change diapers or, you know, you really were very supported. I'm not saying that everyone, you know, your situation is better than others, but I'm just trying to look for any uh, shining lights in these stories is where you could benefit. And I think that helped you become more confident as a mom when you were able to bring her home to know how to navigate these things. So I think that was really great experience for you. Absolutely. I don't wish people to go into the NICU, but I also know that it is not necessarily such a, a terrible experience um, to be in, in the NICU. Even things like, um, you know, they had a, a dishwasher set up in the pump room so that you could just throw all of your parts in and and disinfect your pump parts. And, you know, if I'm really honest, that was probably the most annoying thing to have to do mm. that eight, eight times a day. Yeah. Yeah. We've all been there. So, um, you know, I just, again, want to reiterate, yes, we wouldn't wish this on anyone, but I think especially for us as both naturopathic doctors, we both value integrative medicine, meaning that Mm -hmm. yes, we have a love and a passion for natural therapies, but we also have a great appreciation and knowledge for conventional medicine. And there's a time and a place and there's no other place in the world. I would want my child if medically necessary, there's a means for a NICU stay. It's probably by far the safest place for her to be with the best type of care, who knows exactly how to specifically help this child. And I think it's truly a gift and something that we can all applaud all the NICU nurses and the doctors and all of the advancements in medicine to truly keep these kids who could have died even decades prior. I think it's something really special and amazing. And if your doctor were to recommend a NICU stay, I'm I'm certain no parent would argue with that. But knowing that there could be good experience coming from that, I think is, 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 you know, just settling and, and, and hopeful for some of these moms maybe listening or about to potentially be going into the NICU. So I appreciate all of this. Yeah. That's great. Um, Another question that I thought was interesting, and then we're going to wrap up in a little bit, but just trying to look because there were such great questions. I think this is probably a good one. 
is one of the questions was, how do you heal from the trauma of a NICU experience? Uh, did you find that even after bringing Edie home, there was still some work that needed to be done on an emotional level for both you and or your husband or even together that really had to be completed in order for you guys just to kind of get back into what a normal routine of life would be with a child? What was your experience even after the NICU? It's interesting. I Even though I, I think that being in the NICU in some ways can be a, a traumatic experience, I wouldn't say that I, I consider us traumatized from it. And, you know, that's not to say that I don't have sort of moments. The first time that we had a follow-up visit in the in the weeks after taking her home, we actually ended up um, having to follow up at the hospital that's across the street from where she was at the NICU. And really being able to look up and see the room that she had been in for those two months, like all of a sudden was so emotional for me as I was standing on the street corner, um, you know, with this like new baby out of the NICU going, oh my God, that's where you lived for your first mm-hmm. two months. And that's where, you know, that's where they saved your life and, and got you to us. And, and um, yeah, I'm sure I looked like a bit of a basket case having a, having a mini breakdown on the street. But um, there's certainly those moments with like anniversaries of, you know, this is when we brought you home or this was the last time you were in the hospital or this is um, about the time that this happened, those I still find are are challenging moments for I think both my husband and I. But we mostly just acknowledge them and and we talk about how lucky we we think we are to mm-hmm. have these home now. And not so much trauma. I I don't feel traumatized, and that might be because I I do have a medical background and I asked all my questions and I feel like I advocated for her when I needed to advocate. And we did feel like we had a lot of support and, and ultimately we're just so glad to, to have her home with us. Um, but I, I don't certainly take away from um, the moms who do feel like it was a really traumatic experience because, you know, I, I did see Edie have, you know, IV lines poked into her and, you know, she did have lumbar punctures, which I think that no parent wants to see. But coming at things from a medical perspective on my end, I think that I was able to say like, oh, my God, this lumbar puncture seems terrible. But I also don't want her to have meningitis. Mm-hmm. So we got to find that out and we have to we have to move on. So I feel like I probably I prob- probably buffered a lot of the traumatic things for my husband, who is a lot more sensitive and emotional than I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I feel like we we talk about the NICU even still, but not in a not in a oh my god, I I can't believe how awful it was kind mm-hmm. of way. And I think that I'm glad you mentioned that. I think some may feel more of that trauma, while others may not. And I think it's important to honor wherever you're at. One of the things that I think you had in your favor that was truly a gift was that you do have a medical background. And, you know, when I heard your story, even in more medical depth, right, than even our podcast was able to share was you really did know the questions to ask. You knew where to go to research. You knew, you know, what type of conversations you could have with the doctors to make the next medical decision. You are truly proactive. And I find that to be such a gift to the family, of course, and to to Edie. What I wanted just to leave the guests by saying is that I actually find your personal experience to now really be a gift for your patients who may be experiencing this. I think as doctors, one of the best things we could do is empathize with our patients. And I think now if you do, when you do have patients who also have NICU experiences, you can really help hold their hand through this. And I I think that's a real gift, something that I don't personally have with my patients. I know I love referring patients to you who may be in that situation. If you're a listener in the Toronto area and you want some more guidance in this, I think Dr. Basota, she's my number one go-to contact for that. And I do find that, again, a lot of these challenging times do bring us some gifts. And I think that Edie is truly a miracle and some, you know, a little baby that we're all just, we're so lucky to have in our lives. And we can look at her now in, not that we don't look at all of our kids with such awe (laughs) and love, but I don't know, there's just always something about these miracle children, either the children who were, took years and years to conceive or those who really fought for their lives to then be here with us. I, I find those kids to just be really magical little kids and the strength that it brings to the parents, I think is extraordinary. So 
I thank you so much again for taking the time to share your story with our listeners. Like I said, Stephanie Granke, my my co-host, is going to be also doing a couple other interviews. So for moms who really want more and want to learn from other parents, everyone has their own unique experience and everyone has their own unique tips and advice. And I thank you again today, Dr. Basota, for coming and sharing yours so so eloquently and and really with such grace and, and it's it's admirable. So thank you for that. And I surely hope that doesn't, you know, happen to your next child. I hope that there may <laughs> be one coming up again. We never know. But you know, if if that is the case, I know that you're also going to be able to go get through it with so much courage. So I, I wish you the best with all that. So you have to keep us posted. Well, thanks. I'm really delighted to be able to talk about our experience with Edie. And I'm a pretty firm believer that, um, you know, the the babies that you have, you know, pick you for a reason. And I'm really happy that Edie picked us to be her advocates. And and I'm really happy that she picked me to learn so much um, about maternal fetal medicine because I am really surprised at how often it comes into play in my practice. You know, I it's like until you really see it from from that perspective, you don't know how many people ended up with, you know, complicated pregnancies, complicated births, even a few days in the NICU. And it's nice to be able to say to people, yep, we we were there, too. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm really happy to have that um, that experience and in, in the long run. Um, and I'm happy to have have uh, been a podcast guest for you today. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you so much. I hope you enjoy that massage. You absolutely deserve it. Enjoy (laughs) the rest of the day. And again, thank you so much. I I look forward to airing this episode and sharing it with all of our guests. Thank you. Of course. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode and look forward to listening to more stories coming up on Navigating the NICU throughout this month. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us out by sharing our podcast with your mama friends and writing us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you enjoyed about this episode and help us grow our village. You can also visit our website at homemamasclub.com forward slash podcast to review show notes, find past episodes, and leave comments and questions for future shows. Please remember that the views and ideas presented on this podcast are for informational purposes only. All information, content, and material presented on this podcast is for informational purposes only and not intended to serve as a substitute for consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or health provider. Consult with your qualified physician or healthcare provider before starting any diet, supplement, regimen, or to determine the appropriateness of the information shared on this podcast or if you have any questions regarding pregnancy or your prenatal treatment plan. Now go on and have a good day and nourish and nurture yourself and your family. (music) 